Welcome to the Apologies Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Whistle-Fenton. I created this podcast to promote collective healing and repair. Each episode, I invite my guests to share an apology that they've been carrying. The only rule is that it has to be for a person they are no longer in contact with. My dream is that at least some of these apologies might actually reach their intended recipients. I also hope this podcast reinforces the idea that as different as we may seem, we're all just people and we all carry stuff. So with each guest, we'll first spend some time just learning who and how they are before hearing their apology. Today, we'll be talking with Joelle Simone Maldonado. She's a licensed funeral director and sacred grief practitioner. She's also the host of the Death and Grief Talk podcast and the YouTube channel at The Grave Woman. Joelle educates the public through open and honest conversations about death, dying, and worldwide funeral culture. She does this through courses, through a podcast, YouTube channel, and her social media platforms. In her work, Joelle draws upon ancient and ancestral wisdom. She considers it her life's work to educate everyone, regardless of their faith, race, age, or status, that death, dying, and grief are a sacred and transformative part of our journeys as human beings. Joelle, welcome to the Apologies podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's get to know you a bit. Give us the like dating app profile of yourself. Like if you were going to describe yourself in a in a paragraph on Bumble, or we can say, because I know you're a married woman, we can say Bumble BFF, which is my new favorite thing. <laughs> what would what would it say? Eclectically eccentric, novice philosopher seeking connection and ethereal guidance. Oh. Damn, that is the most perfect response that like actually gives us a hint of who you are. So I absolutely love that. One thing you did not mention in your description, but I know from being a fan of your work is that you also describe yourself as morbidly curious. And that's something you said you've had your whole life. You've always had this fascination with death and dying and I think spirituality and traditions. Do you have an idea of how that started for you or does it sort of predate your consciousness? That's such a good question. And I love that you added predate my consciousness. I do definitely think it's something that predates my consciousness. However, I come from an environment where exploration of all things was very encouraged. And for me, I just naturally gravitated towards, I hate to put it in a box, but spirituality and the essence of the spirit and who we are beyond the surface, so to speak. And I think it initially showed up for me because when I was a little girl, let's say my parents and I were in a room with a group of people, when my parents would either go into a different space or like turn their backs I would see people's, and I'm using air quotes, true form. Some people would turn into monsters. Mm. People would turn into cartoon characters. Some people would turn into these beautiful beings. But it would only happen when my parents weren't there, if that makes sense. It does. I, I get that. Going back to your earlier description of yourself, you also, I think, use the word philosopher. Do you feel like those are linked? Because it seems like 
having a philosophical outlook goes hand in hand with sort of what you're describing and this sort of spiritual understanding of the world around you. You know what? I think it does. I use the word philosopher, novice philosopher, because I, I it's just that it's curiosity to understand what and why is. And as I get older, not so much why, but what. Hmm. I like that. Nov- I like that framing philosopher as curiosity because I feel like your curiosity informs so much of who you are and what you do. Definitely. I would agree 100%. And I think it's the curiosity that kind of shapes not just the the mortuary science aspect of what I do, but definitely the grief part of what I do or who I am, because there's no definition for it. It's so abstract. It's so unique to individuals. So it causes me to then again, go into that novice philosophy role again. So it's like the gift that keeps on giving, so to speak. I love it. And I love that you grew up in an environment where where those aspects of yourself were all encouraged, that you were encouraged to follow that that curiosity and the interests that you have that might, you know, differ from the norm a little bit. You know, I'm curious about how people reacted to your morbid curiosity, especially when you were younger, you know, and and people would talk to you about what you wanted to be when you grew up. I don't think it was that far-fetched because I had an uncle that was a mortician when I was a little girl or went to, he actually went to mortuary school when I was a little girl. And there have been several people in my family that have taken care of the deceased or helped others through transition, whether it be as they were dying or after the loss had occurred through what we called the missionary society through my church um, that I grew up in. But I think as far as immediate family, that's concerned. Now, friends, on the other hand, it would be like, okay, she's, this is our strange friend. (laughs) Um, She's into, you know, watching YouTube videos on autopsies and, you know, going and having lunch in the cemetery. So yeah, I just, think it depends on where I've met people throughout my life and throughout my journey. Uh, I just want to say I would actually just consider you a trendsetter because, you know, you saw the whole crime scene forensic science thing coming. Like now everybody is on Netflix and YouTube watching movies about autopsies. (laughs) That's so crazy. And I think about that, especially now with Netflix series like about Dahmer and Ted Bundy. These are things that I have been obsessed with since I was a child. Yeah. So I would I would amend that you were not the weird friend. You were the visionary friend who saw (laughs) who had the guts to make this this morbid fascination known ahead of time. And I want to just quick go back to your childhood of I remember you sharing in another conversation we had about a, a picture that you drew for your family of how you saw your future vocation. Can you share that? Sure. So growing up, I would spend a lot of time with my maternal grandmother, my nanny. And during the summers, we would go to her house. And, you know, as a kid, you think you're going to grandma's house for the summer. You're going to watch TV and sleep all day. Well, not so much at nanny's house. We had what was called nanny day camp. And part of that was a creative exercise every day, whether it be drawing, making masks out of paper mache, whether it be making pine cone art, anything. But my favorite thing to do, or one of my favorite things to do was to draw. So during our creative time on this day, I guess I drew a picture of myself standing in a cemetery with a microphone, 
speaking to the graves and in the corner it says I am the grave woman and I have on this bright red lipstick now I have no recollection of drawing that picture it's dated September 11th 1994 and what's ironic is that in 2011 September of 2011 I start mortuary school I'm going through mortuary school and while in mortuary school I start a blog called the grave woman I'm a month away from a finishing mortuary school and my sister's hanging out with me at my apartment and she finds a photo album that my grandmother made me as a going away gift when I went to college. And inside of this photo album is this drawing that I made when I was eight years old. And it's me in a cemetery talking to the graves with the caption, I am the grave woman. Wow. Yeah. Another revelation that's come out of that photo is that I'm of the Gullah and Geechee culture and descent from Beaufort, South Carolina. And I recently found out in the last month or so that women in my culture, when they were brought here as enslaved people, even though they not, did not speak the same language, even though they did not communicate with each other in the same language, they would make sounds with their mouth that would mean impending death for their captors and slave owners. And so what was done to these women was that they were basically ball and gagged and they were not able to speak or allowed to communicate with one another verbally because of the power of the sounds that they would make. And when I started doing YouTube and my podcast and my blog, my signature look is red lipstick. And it was revealed to me that that is why the red lipstick was in the picture and the red lipstick is in like, it's just a part of me because of the power of the words coming out of my mouth that are tied to my culture, to my ancestors. And again, precedes my consciousness of the work that I'm doing. And you, you talk about the Gullah and Geechee culture and you incorporate that in the work you do, which we're going to get more into a minute, but can you just kind of tell us what is it? How does it inform the work that you do? Definitely. Gullah and Geechee culture is derived of West African, Spanish, French, and I think Creole culture. And it, I'm from Beaufort, South Carolina. Beaufort, South Carolina is in the Port Royal Sound. The last statistic that I looked at is I think over 98% of the African-American people in this country can trace their lineage to the Port Royal Sound because this is one of the biggest, if not the biggest slave ports in the world where we were bought in and dispersed as slaves throughout this country. So Beaufort, South Carolina, the Gullah and Geechee culture is the preservation of who we were prior to being enslaved people. And that culture is still very alive, not only here in Beaufort, South Carolina, but in Charleston and Florida, in New Orleans, in Virginia, and all of the states along the Eastern Seaboard. Was that something that you were conscious of growing up? Like, was that incorporated into your family or your um, childhood in any way? Or is it something you kind of came to learn more about later in life? That's actually a twofold answer. Yes, it was very much so incorporated into my childhood, but not in a sense of this is who you are. It was in a sense of this is who we are and this is what we do. 
I didn't realize how powerful it was until I moved away from my home. Like many of us do, we take things for granted. We don't really appreciate where we come from until we realize that people around the world do things a little bit differently than we do. Just speaking generally in terms of death care, the way that we do death and funeral and burial here is very unique because it's very tied to those cultures. There's a very strong sense of spirituality, of community, of everyone is a part of the process where working in Atlanta, that wasn't so much the case and experiencing and observing other cultures from around the United States and around the world, that isn't so much the case the way that it is here. And that tradition and culture and ritual I love that that is such a part of your work and it's something that's important to you because I think one of the things modern life has really done, especially or at least in this culture or, you know, pockets of this culture, as you said, it's still alive in some places, is that it's really stripped away a lot of our traditions and rituals, especially in the context of death and grief. So having your viewpoint of seeing what that looks like when it is kind of part of a death and dying and and grieving ritual. And then in another place where it's not, what do we lose when we're robbed of those rituals, those practices, that connection to cultural heritage? You know what? That's such a good question. I'll just speak from my personal experience. So I want you to picture that you're at a funeral or a burial or even in a cemetery. I'm actually, I had to pull over and park in the cemetery, Um, but I'm sitting in my car at a cemetery and I'm watching these gentlemen just kind of sit around. They're in between services. They're just taking a break, right? I think we lose the intimacy of the work that we do in death care. Not that these gentlemen don't deserve to take a break. They're very hardworking. However, I'm in the National Cemetery, which means that it's not based around any culture. It's not based around any particular religion or anything specific, right? Any and everyone can be buried here as long as you serve the country and you've earned the right to be here, right? However, I can go about 20 minutes onto what's called St. Helena Island and watch two gentlemen do the same exact act, but there's a little bit more reverence to what they're doing, if that makes sense. They probably have taken their hats off because they're preparing the resting place for someone who is transitioned and become an ancestor. That's the way we view it in our culture. So there's a deeper reverence and a deeper, I'm not saying that what these gentlemen have done is in any way disrespectful, but there's a deeper reverence that we lose when we're not aware of what we're doing and the significance of what we're doing represents. And I think that's the main thing that separates my culture, the Gullah and Gigi culture, from ways that death and dying are done, especially amongst Black and African-American and maybe Indigenous cultures outside of what we practice. Something as seemingly insignificant as clapping, clapping our hands in a church during a funeral service is invoking the spirit of God. It's invoking the spirit Mm -hmm. of peace. It's invoking the spirit of comfort. And we do that subconsciously knowing that power. So other places that I've been, I've realized that people clap, but they don't really understand what they're inviting or invoking or producing with that clapping. Do you, does that make sense? Yeah, sort of a a consciousness or almost a presence in the action. Yes, it's a it's a deeper connection to spirit, and I, I believe that can be applied to Polish culture. It can be applied to anything. It's not unique to 
my culture, but you ask, what do we lose when we lose that connection to culture? Another way that I'll answer that again is saying I'm sitting in a cemetery, right? And imagine you're a person that's seeking to learn more about your family. As a white woman, you could probably visit a cemetery in a town and get information four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten generations back. As a black woman that was bought here as an enslaved person, I don't have that same privilege because my name was changed. My identity was stolen. I don't have that connection with my past. So veneration and connecting with my ancestors spiritually is really the only choice that I have after a certain point. Well, and that culture does so much to inform your practice, which is so rich and you wear so many hats in this industry. And I want to just kind of go a little back to how you ended up on this This almost seems like destined path for you. You described yourself earlier very fairly as eclectic and you have a very eclectic educational and professional background. Can you sort of briefly describe your resume and how those things have come together to form and shape the practice that you're currently engaged in? Oh, okay. I will try to make this brief. So my high school journey was unique in the fact that I attended a vocational high school where I obtained my licensure in master barbering, which is a combination of barbering and cosmetology. So you're a master barber. Um, From there, I went to college. And from there, my first job out of college was working in a cemetery. And while working there, it was affirmed to me that I was supposed to be working in the death industry. Now, let's go back a little bit to that elementary middle school phase. As I mentioned earlier, I had an uncle that was a mortician and I spent so much time with him at the funeral home. I would bombard him with questions about the deceased, preparing the deceased, caring for the deceased and their families. And eventually he just started letting me go to the funeral home with him, which I fell in love with and would spend every moment I could that I wasn't in school in Florida with him at the funeral home. Fast forwarding to working in the cemetery, I transitioned from that job into going to mortuary school where I started my blog. It was just a way for me to express my thoughts, my anxieties, my stress, and to communicate about what it was that I was learning and how I was doing mentally at the time. And my first job out of mortuary school was twofold. I started working for Emory University doing something completely unrelated to death care. But while working with Emory University, I was introduced to a gentleman that ran the anatomical donation lab. And for those of you that are not familiar with that, that basically means the bodies that are donated to the university go into the anatomical lab and they go through various procedures, embalming included, to prepare them for medical students to observe, work, and practice on, for lack of a better word. And from there, I went to work at a corporate funeral home and cemeteries throughout Atlanta. And once I received my license, I started making YouTube videos. I got serious about making YouTube videos. And here we are today. (laughs) I hope that was a a short enough answer. It's great. And again, I love how all of these things come together to inform the work you do. And I love also that you're so public with the work you do because you, you do work in death care, which has the sort of 
mystique for those of us outside of this industry. And I know a lot of the work you do is around professional development for people in the industry, but you also do, you know, being so public, I think you help normalize this. So I realized there, there may not be a typical day, but maybe could you like, what would, what would a typical week look like for you And I'm going to say the you that was like before you started your sort of public facing work in this, like if you were working in a funeral director or as a mortician, like what would that week look like for you? Definitely. I'll go back to when I was doing my apprenticeship. Um, I would go to work at Emory University during the day, the typical work schedule, eight to four. But then after I would get off, I'd go to the funeral home and I could be at the funeral home until 10 o'clock at night. I could go home at 10 o'clock at night and be right back at one o'clock in the morning answering a first call or retrieving a loved one from their place of death. And just depending on what the needs were at the funeral home at that time, it could be spent preparing for visitations, families coming in, cleaning up after a service. And then on the weekends, I split my time between the funeral home that I was doing my apprenticeship with and the corporate funeral home because I wanted to get more perspective than just the typical African-American funeral practice as it was at the funeral home that I was working with. Um, And so when I would work at the corporate funeral home, I was fascinated with the fact that there were so many different people from so many different backgrounds coming in and no service looked exactly the same. And being at that corporate funeral home could be Thursday evening, after work all the way up until wee hours of Monday morning until it was time to start the cycle again. And I did that for about three years. <laughs> Ooh, that is, yeah, that, well, and that, that makes sense because uh, it, the estimates are, I've read different numbers that up to 50% of funeral directors quit within the first five years. And, and what you're describing just sounds meaningful and fulfilling, but also just relentless. And I'm just curious, like in your experience, what do you see as some of those main reasons that contribute to that high level of turnover? So I mentioned my apprenticeship. I would clock out of work and go to my apprenticeship in the evening because my apprenticeship was not paid. It was paid and experienced, but it had no financial gain for me. So basically I was a volunteer. (laughs) Uh, a volunteer with a state number that says I was an apprentice. And so I think the number one thing is money. A lot of funeral professionals, even once we receive licensure, forty to 50000 even seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 seems like a lot of money on paper, right? But when you're on call 24-7, mm. you don't have time with your family. You're emotionally, physically, spiritually burnt out. Again, you mentioned the fact that I've normalized conversations about the death care industry. You don't really have a lot of people that you could talk to about what you do because this is supposed to be what you're good at. You signed up for this and nobody wants to hear about children being killed in car accidents or dying in house fires or, Mm. you know, just all of the the sad things that happen to people that come to us. Nobody wants to talk about that at two or three o'clock in the morning. If you're a funeral director that's on call, at two or three o'clock in the morning, you're tired. I don't, I don't care how many energy drinks or coffees you have. You're tired. And very few organizations or independent funeral homes offer health insurance and retirement. So you're doing all of this work and you're still having to take side jobs to make ends meet 
you get sick and you can't go to the doctor because you don't have health insurance. Um, you, your relationships suffer because you, you're not there. And when you're there, you're tired. So you want to go to sleep. So you're really not there or you're just not in a good mood. And then when you're up, everybody else is sleeping. So it, there's so many different things. And honestly, I think with the onset of the pandemic, a lot of people have seen a financial avenue for themselves. And I don't care how much money you make in this industry. If your heart's not in it, you're not going to last. So I think that just that's honestly part of it as well. But I also I think that like we look at doctors and we have a high level of esteem or reverence for doctors or lawyers. Right. But then when people it's kind of like going to the dentist, nobody wants to go to the funeral home. And when you do go to the funeral home, you know, it's probably one of the worst days of your life. So people kind of become afraid of you and that could be isolating yeah that's really hard and I'm just processing all of that that is that's a hard job that I think people don't like you said there's so much isolation and not a lot of us have a direct connection to that industry so I can completely see the fear factor like you mentioned or just that you're just sort of off to the side until people need to engage with you so that all makes so much sense it's cool now you know thanks to social media but Prior to social media, I mean, depending on your personality type, I could see how many professionals just go into a very deep depression. Well, and then uh, self-medicating could be another thing when that happens. For sure. And that was like my uncle and my mom's biggest fear for me because I, I come from alcoholic backgrounds. And when I say alcoholic backgrounds, my uncle, the one that was a mortician, was an alcoholic. And my grandfather on my father's side was also an alcoholic. So whatever the the genetic makeup for that certain illness, it, I, I'm, I'm predisposed to it. So I've never seen my mother take a drink. I've seen my dad drink socially, but he really makes a point not to because of the fact that his father was an alcoholic. But it, it that was their biggest fear for me. Um, and there was a while right after mortuary school and starting my apprenticeship that I can say I was drinking a lot. But for me, it wasn't so much the isolation. This is what did it for me. It was the fact that I was seeing so many young Black men coming to the mm. funeral home as a result of gun violence. And it was just soul crushing for me. So it was like a turning, a, revol a revolving door of families, of mothers coming and burying their sons, children having to cry at their father's caskets. And it, it just was a lot to process mentally. Thank God for me, I sought out mental health resources and I was in the position because I had a full-time job. I could stop going to the funeral home and just focus on taking care of myself for six months. But a lot of people don't have that option. And I don't, I, I know I'm, you, I'm trying to answer your question and be mm -hmm. as honest as possible, but I don't want to make it seem like our job is just so downtrodden. It's also the most fulfilling job that I think anyone could have or the most fulfilling calling or assignment anyone could have in this realm because we are, I view myself as a vessel to care for those that have become ancestors. And that to me, I mean, it, it, you couldn't get much better than that. You can't, what an honor, you know, but it, it does come 
with a heavy cost, with a heavy crown. And and you hit so many things there, a few different threads that I want to touch on. One, I also want to thank you for normalizing that you recognized that you needed help and you got it. And I, I thank you for sharing that and normalizing that. You're talking about the unique experience, particularly of seeing these young Black men coming in. And I know a lot of your work focuses around the fact that death care as an industry and especially death care education is not the most uh, inclusive industry of BIPOC communities. And I know that you have made so many strides in trying to change that. So can you share with us a little bit about sort of how that lack of inclusivity shows up and, and what you're working on now to, to kind of change the tide there? When I attended mortuary school in 2011, 2012, I cannot tell you one time that I was told or instructed or given any resources on how to care for anyone other than white people. My saving grace, again, we're going to go back to that high school experience, was that I had formal education in caring for the hair, cosmetic and other needs, just cultural needs because I'm a black woman, because of my culture and my size, I, I'm sensitive to certain things. Right. But I received no training and my classmates who did not have the privilege of being a licensed cosmetologist or barber weren't black women or black men weren't plus size individuals. It wouldn't even enter their mind to think about these things or ask questions about these things. So I say that to say that the education at that time and to date is non-inclusive. And I'm only speaking from the Black woman lens. I'm not talking about a Hispanic family, a Haitian family, a Puerto Rican family. And then going and working in the amazing funeral home that I worked with, we cared for Islamic families. We cared for Buddhist families. We cared for... Black families, white families, Hispanic families. And then working with the corporate funeral home, I got an introduction to the Asian and other cultures. And so it stood out to me that there was all of this protocol for working with Asian and Jewish families. But when it came to working with Black families and Black decedents, it was almost excusable not to do the job. Because, oh, I don't know what they want or I don't know what to do with her hair. I'll just call somebody and I'll, you know, I'll let the family know they have to call somebody or, oh, I'll let you do it because I'm sure you know how, you know, to me, that's inexcusable because people of all colors, shapes, sizes, backgrounds pass away. And so during the pandemic, uh, just prior to the pandemic, I met my mentor, Miss Anita Pollard Grant, and she, at the time I had made some videos expressing myself about the experiences in the funeral home and my frustration about some of the racist things and the not the, the inexclusivity of my formal training. And she said, you know, Joelle, these could be courses that you teach other people. And she lit a fire on me. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to take this frustration and this anger and this disappointment and the lack of what I've been exposed to and others that I know have been exposed to. And I'm going to teach people how to do it. And that was the beginning of the cultural competency series that I developed to teach funeral professionals, healthcare professionals, as well as doulas and other end of life specialists on how to care for, communicate with and comfort 
Black families. There are certain things that you do to our hair. Our hair has spiritual significance. It represents so much. And to not even know how to do something as simple as a shampoo or detangle our hair or take out braids or properly apply cosmetics to me is unacceptable. So I am working my butt off to continue to create courses that teach professionals from all ends of the end of life spectrum to do those things. It shouldn't be something that professionals have to seek out and hurt families and traumatize families in order to realize that they need. And I am in a, I don't want to say battle, but in a uncomfortable position with the American Board of Funeral Service Education because I bought this up at their national conference um, or at the national conference during one of their sessions. And it just seemed to me and others that were there that they just weren't interested in having this conversation. So uh, it's kind of like, where do you put the energy? Do you try to change the standard education or do I create these spaces and make them accessible to the professionals? Well, and I applaud you for everything you've created. And as you said, I know that you you wear so many hats and do so many things and then to take on a necessary thing. So that, as you said, that it's not impacting the families who really should be at the heart of this work, that you are helping people be prepared so they're not learning in the heat of a crisis situation. So I we've talked a lot about your professional endeavors but I also feel like with death care, when people think of it, it's it's hard to imagine someone like a funeral director, for example, at a at a karaoke bar or a CrossFit class. But like, I'm guessing that you're not just spending your life sitting in the basement of a morgue with your hands crossed in your lap, like waiting for the next embalming session to begin. What else fills your life? What what brings you joy? Oh my gosh. Um, right now, my husband, I am a newlywed. My husband fills Congratulations. my life. Thank you. He fills my life with so much joy. We spend a lot of time together. I recently moved from Atlanta back home to Beaufort, South Carolina. So I spend a, a lot of time with my grandmother and my mom and they fill my life with joy. It's such a beautiful experience to see my grandmothers, not just my mom's mom, but my dad's mom as well. To see Black women age is an experience that I think everyone should have. It is magical. You talk about Black girl magic, like the stories, the wisdom, the essence, the spunkiness, the freedom, like just seeing her, even at her age, still having revelations and still evolving and still learning. It just did something to me. It was like, I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to get it all right. I can be wrong and still grow, you know? So things like that fill my life with joy. Travel. I recently had the opportunity to go to Yosemite National Park. And it's something I've been wanting to do for 20 plus years. And it was like, I'm still high off the adventure. So no, I'm not sitting in a morgue, just, <laughs> just chilling. No, I like uh, The Real Housewives and other senseless television. I'm probably one of the goofiest people you'll ever meet. And I think that's a part of why I love social media for death care. It's because you get to see the people behind the work. We're so different. We're so diverse. We're so, we're just awesome. <laughs> You're just, you're people, you're people and all the glorious varieties that people come in. And I want to quick, you said the people behind the work. I also want to give a shout out to the people 
behind the people. So you mentioned, you know, your husband bringing you joy. And I bring this up because I went to I'm I'm a planner and I I grew up in a I will say I guess sort of death positive house where you know everyone was in healthcare so we always talked about stuff and it, it doesn't scare me at all to talk about planning and, and such so during COVID I actually met with a funeral director because it was it was actually not prompted by COVID it was something I'd been meaning to do and just had the time because we were in lockdown and I started talking about some of my end of life plans and getting some questions and answers and. Somewhere during the conversation, he had started sharing about his wife, who I think he was sharing because she had passed, but he was talking about how unappreciated her role was in his vocation because he was like, as you said, you're getting calls in the middle of the night, you're missing holidays and you're leaving family parties and you make a lot of sacrifices in that role and finding a partner who is not only okay with that, but is supportive of that is something that that maybe doesn't get enough appreciation and recognition from from people who are outside that situation. You're 100 percent correct. Right now, my career doesn't look so much like those one, two or three o'clock calls. It looks like, OK, babe, I'm going to be out of town for a week this month and three days this week. And like my husband, he's the best because he's he doesn't try to stifle me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or if I have to get this class done and I'm constantly, you know, waking him up in the middle of the night with ideas on how to make courses better. And do you understand this? Like, do you get what I'm saying? But yeah, I don't think the spouses, the children, the parents in the communities of death care professionals get the respect that they deserve in many cases, because you're right. It comes at a cost and it it's. Not, I don't say that begrudgingly because what more beautiful thing can you do than to sacrifice yourself to be there for others in the time of need? But I think there has to be a balance. I'm a big believer of and they can both be true. It can it can be challenging and it can be worthwhile. You've said my life and my work is a form of self-fulfilling prophecy and as part of ancestral legacy and a fulfillment of destiny. Do you think we all have such a legacy and a destiny? I do. I really do. I don't think we would be here if we didn't. You talked about ritual. I think the most important ritual that I practice at this time is the ritual of obedience. That little small inner prompting that Mm -hmm. says, do this, not that. Try this, not that. I feel like that is a form of obedience to God or spirit of the universe. And when you are obedient, there is a reward and that reward is that destiny. We are now at apology time. So Joelle, what apology do you carry that you would like to share? I want to apologize to my former boss for not telling you exactly how I was feeling, but then having the conversation about my feelings with HR. I should have given you the opportunity to hear out my grievances with you. I I honestly was afraid that there would be some type of retaliation based on former experiences with this person, but I just don't feel good about not having that conversation directly with them and them getting that information from their superior. Thank you for your candor and sharing that with us. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Joelle Simone Maldonado is a licensed funeral director, sacred grief practitioner, and educator. To learn more about Joelle's work and to hear additional episodes from this podcast, visit apologies-podcast.com. 
I'm Lindsay Whistle-Fenton. Thank you for being here for this episode of the Apologies Podcast. If you haven't already yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And then if you want to go an extra mile, it would be so helpful if you would rate and review this series on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts because of the algorithms and all the things. It helps other people find the podcast, which gives us a bigger pool of connections to make as we embark on this journey of healing. The Apologies Podcast is a production of Empathic Media, LLC. It's hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lindsay Whistle-Fenton, with music by Taizo Audio. If you have an apology you'd like to share, and you'd like to be considered to be a guest on the Apologies Podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out by going to apologies-podcast.com slash contact. Thank you.